I invite you this morning to come with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, the 21st chapter. And if you're wondering why we're not in Jeremiah, we will be again. The thought here in the season of Easter to look at a couple of things together related to that glorious reality. Matthew chapter 21, we'll begin reading at verse 6. Actually, let's back all the way up to verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you will say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them and that followed them were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of our God. Grant to us now, Father, by your Spirit, that we rightly hear this, your word. May we be encouraged this day. May we be brought to fresh repentance, fresh obedience, and the joy of beholding our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Here begins the account of the final week of Jesus' life. Besides this procession, in a matter of eight days, it includes a second cleansing of the temple, some of Jesus' final teachings, the institution of the Lord's Supper, suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and finally his resurrection. Matthew devotes one-fourth of his 28-chapter gospel, as we have it, he devotes one-fourth of it to this final week. Matthew's gospel, his eyewitness account of Jesus, has a particular theme, as do all the other gospels. Uh, in the others, it appears that Mark's emphasis is on Jesus as servant, that Luke points to Jesus as the Son of Man, and John continually beats the drum for Jesus as God's Son. That is, his emphasis is on the deity of Christ. Matthew's approach, however, frequently points to Jesus as king. This last week I was pondering this 
the, the triumphal entry passages. And here we read the crowds call out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And it started me thinking about that title applied to Jesus, Son of David. And I began to think about that, not only in terms of Matthew's gospel, which we're going to see in a minute. You're going to get a little bit of a biblical theology here. But also other texts, both in the Old and New Testament. Consider what it is the crowd's saying. Jesus enters Jerusalem at the time of Passover. There are multiplied thousands of pilgrims streaming into Jerusalem at this time, coming there to observe Passover in Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that the Lord had sent his disciples into Jerusalem to ask to pick up, if you will, his mode of transportation. And it was a donkey and its foal. And apparently Jesus actually rides on the foal, though the cloaks are placed on both of them. And one of the reasons for the two animals was that the, the, the foal was young enough, it wasn't going anywhere without mama. So both animals, and they come into Jerusalem. Now, in far days prior, kings did ride in on donkeys. Now, for our particular backgrounds, we always think in terms of great white horses, right? Great white steeds, that's how a king ought to enter. And yet it wasn't uncommon for a king to make use of a donkey in coming in. But it was also to be the fulfillment. The text that Matthew cites from Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But you see, there's more than just Zechariah's prophecy. There's another thread of prophetic promise here. The coming king had a heritage, a birthright, son of David. And you've got to know, folks, the crowd included a lot of folks from Galilee and specifically from Nazareth. And this was a chance for them to shout their approval of him. Now, they hadn't received him well when he'd been among them, but they apparently get caught up in this as well. So what of the cry? What does this mean? Does it matter to us? What do we do with this specifically Jewish frame of reference for the Messiah? Does it impact us? Does it have anything to do with us other than an intriguing historical note? Should this be a little footnote and we give it no further thought? Well, I don't think so. We are missing something essentially strengthening and encouraging when we miss this part of the biblical theme. The son of David reigns. And coming into Jerusalem, we get a picture. Now, acknowledged, the same crowd that is shouting Hosanna will be the same crowd shouting crucify in a matter of days. But you see, my friends, this is anchored first in the kingdom that is promised and delayed. 
If you look into the Old Testament, David, the man after God's own heart, is given a promise from the Lord regarding his lineage, his dynasty. You'll read in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, Nathan is speaking this to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then a little later in the 16th verse, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That seems pretty all-encompassing, doesn't it? David, one of your descendants is going to reign. And yet less than, say, 500 years later, we read in Jeremiah's work, at chapter 39, this account. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So we go from this ascendancy of David after the failure of Saul, David uniting the kingdom, David out of Judah, David coming out of Hebron, David conquering the city of Jerusalem, David uniting the kingdom around him, David creating a dynasty and the promise, one of yours shall reign. And in a matter of generations, just a few, the last descendant of David, Zedekiah, dies. And he sees all of his children, his sons, slaughtered. Where's the hope? Where's the promise? It shall come. The king's arrival. Matthew chapter 1 opens this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why those words? Matthew writes to a primarily Jewish audience. But my friend, it's not that this doesn't matter to Gentiles. Yes, there is this Jewish lineage that we must pay attention to. But that is our salvation as well. What God promises to David through the prophet Nathan, he brings to fruition a thousand years later in this Jesus, the son of David. You read the angelic announcement in Matthew 1, verse 20, whenever Joseph is struggling over what he's supposed to do. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, hear this, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is not the son of Joseph. We know that. Believing in the virgin birth, we know that 
the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary in a tremendous, miraculous act, she conceives without a husband. And yet we know he is son of God, but how son of David? Well, it's possible if you look at the lineage, possibly the Lucan lineage may point to Mary's descendants through Judah. But Joseph, in essence, adopting Jesus as a son and his heir was quite common in that day. Jesus is treated as his son. We're given this picture. Matthew opens with son of David. When he talks to Joseph, son of David, this wonderful gospel of the kingdom is about the king. Now, I will not for a moment tell you that the people were looking for the right kind of Messiah. They wanted a Davidic king, but for many of them, the idea of a king at this point is come in, rally the troops, kick Rome and Caesar to the curb, and reign in Jerusalem over Israel and ultimately over the rest of the world. David's son has come, but not as a military Messiah. You remember the times they would try to come and take and make him a king by force. And every single time, he turns it down. He did not come to be that kind of king. But as I roam my way through the book of Matthew, I see some things. Matthew chapter 9, in the midst of a very busy schedule, Jesus is on his way with a father whose daughter is dying, and he needs Jesus to come, and so Jesus is making his way through the crowd, and as he's making his way through the crowd, remember the woman with the, the chronic hemorrhage is, is suffering greatly, and she doesn't want to get his attention, she thinks, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed, and she does, and she is and we read in the text that Jesus perceives power has gone out from him. And he, I love this, he stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples are, are you kidding me? What do you mean who touched you? There's not room to stand here. She admits it. And she's healed. And about the time that happens, and you know, you get the picture of this father. He's just beside himself. We're not going fast enough. My daughter is sick. Hurry. Word comes. Don't bother the teacher. She's already gone. Which our Lord shows. So what? Raises her from the dead. And as he departs, we read in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud. Hear this. Have mercy on us, son of David. What? He enters the house. The blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I'm going to, that I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And then Jesus warns them, See that no one knows about it. 
But what usually happened happens here. They went away and spread his fame throughout the district. They had a sense somehow there was a bit of a tradition of this Davidic king being a healer. Just as he had shown compassion and power to heal and deliver, we're told something else. In his name, the Gentiles shall hope. Hmm. So I read in Matthew 12, there's another demon-oppressed man, blind and mute, brought to him, he heals him. So he speaks and he sees, and the people are amazed. Can this be the son of David? And of course, the, the leaders can't have that. He casts out by the power of Satan. Blasphemous. But then I read another account, and this account we used for the response of reading this morning. I love that story. And I know, first time you read that story, it's like, what? Did he call her a dog? You'll miss the point if you get hung up on that. How did she speak to him, though? Do you, did you catch that? Matthew 15, verse 22, the Canaanite woman cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And then we have the exchange. Now note, Jesus is not trying to be insulting. He's just simply saying, look, my first ministry is to the Jewish people. And when he says it's not right to give the dogs the children's food, he was using the language of the day. He's going to see, are you going to be offended that you come seeking from son of David salvation for your daughter, that he will use language that you may have found offensive other places, and rather than being offended, she's humbled. And in her humility, she has a little fun. Hey, even the dogs get crumbs. Any of you that keep a pet know that you keep around a four-legged vacuum cleaner. If it hits the floor, gone. Without apology, without shame, and without repentance. Jesus heals her daughter. She calls him son of David, the Jewish king. But we're not done yet with Matthew. Because I go a little further into the 20th chapter. And behold, another pair of blind men. I'm always intrigued by this. We, we have blind men coming in pairs. I don't know what to do with that. It's an unusual thing. As he goes out of Jericho, Matthew 20, verse 29, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And they, the crowd's telling him, shut up, be quiet. And they won't stop. They cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And he stops, asks them what they want, and he heals them. Son of David. Willis pointed out in the call to worship, Matthew 21, because the cry on the procession, Hosanna to the son of David, has echoes that carry on into the temple. 
and the young ones, you know how kids are, right? They hear something and it's loud and exciting. I mean, it's not supposed to be loud and exciting anymore, but you're a kid, who cares? Man, stir something up. They keep following him. Hosanna, son of David. They were indignant, it says, those in the temple. Why are they indignant? They know what's being claimed. The descendant of David, the king of the Jews, Israel's salvation. But you know, Jesus then confronts them a little later. Now I'm trying to string this together, okay? The rabbis would call this stringing pearls, all right? Uh, You'll have to determine whether these are pearls or not. I'm trying to string this together for you. We come to the 22nd chapter of Matthew's gospel. And in verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What do they say? The son of David. And then he asked them another question. How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. They finally had their noses bloodied often enough that they were done asking questions. But he asked them the conundrum. How does David call his son, his descendant, his Lord. How does this make any sense? Now, we, we march through the trial and the whole issue of him being king of the Jews and the whole discussion with Pilate. And I've got a lot of sympathy for Pilate. I think Pilate was a scoundrel, but he was seriously in over his head. He knows Jesus has done nothing wrong. His wife even sends word, have nothing to do with him. I've suffered greatly over a dream because of him. Don't do anything to him. And over and over again, he's trying to get Jesus freed. He'll whip him and hope that's enough. Having scourged him, maybe they'll, their bloodlust would be satisfied. But oh, my friend, when he says to them, What? You want me to do this to your king? You remember their words? We have no king but Caesar. Apostasy of the most horrid stripe. I wash my hands. Fine, let his blood be on us and our children. And in 40 years, that came true with the fall of Jerusalem. And while Pilate does it for his own purposes, what is the sign he puts over Jesus on the cross? Those signs were common when you were taken out to be crucified, four soldiers per convict, per victim. And they would nail above your head a sign. Now, 
You see images of the cross sometimes artistically done their way up in the air. The likelihood is the feet of the one crucified were no more than 12 to 18 inches off the ground. So the sign wouldn't have to be very large, but what did it say? Jesus, King of the Jews. Hmm. You say, okay, great, Pastor. You, you traced it through the Old Testament. You see it in Matthew's Gospel. You may have a point, but does it really have anything to do with us? Well, hold on. Because when I go to the rest of the text of Scripture, I see this king's identity proclaimed. Does it ever strike you that something extraordinary happens between Jesus' crucifixion and some 49 days later? that a group of men who had followed him and when asked about it after the crucifixion, you remember you read this in Luke 24, we thought he was the one, but you know, it was fun while it lasted. He's dead now. What is it that takes these guys from just trying to blend into the crowd, go back to what they were doing, go back to being fishermen or tax collectors or any other thing in the whole wide world. Why is it that 50 days later, give or take, they're suddenly on the streets of Jerusalem shouting and proclaiming again? Hmm. Resurrection. And what does Peter preach on the day of Pentecost? Acts chapter 22 Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it's not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, and he quotes and says, you're not let your holy ones see corruption. Verse 29, brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. But being a prophet, knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that he had set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. He'll go on to say later, for David didn't ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now why should this matter to us? Okay, it's in the Pentecostal preaching, but doesn't it end there? Paul, Romans chapter 1, does something for us. And I think here's a pivot. Here's a place to lay hold. Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God. Then referencing that gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Romans 1, 3, concerning his son, whose son? God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power 
according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul brings it together. Who is Jesus, Son of God? How do you know he's the Son of God? He didn't stay dead. Jesus, in his humanity, Son of David, the promises made to Israel are fulfilled in him. Why does this matter, my friend? Why do we read when we read the text of Scripture? But God communicating to us. God seeking to be in relationship with us. And every attempt in the Old Testament for that relationship comes out to be abject failure. How did Adam do? Crash. How about Noah? Crash. Abraham? Crash. Isaac? Jacob, the sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, the monarch. You look at all of it and you see over and over and over again God reaching out and failure, failure, failure on the part of his people. Who will be the son who will do what his father says? Jesus, son of David, son of God. Now I'm nearly done. But I would have you consider one final text with me. Revelation chapter 5. You know the picture, right? Regardless of your view of Revelation, I think we can all get along in chapters 4 and 5. Okay? I don't know that any of our eschatological positions would keep us from being okay with one another in chapters 4 and 5. For John sees the Lord upon his throne. He sees the elders. He sees the angels. He sees the multitude gathered. And he sees that the one upon the throne, God himself, holds in his hand a scroll. It's written on the front and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. And the question comes out, who can open the seals? And no one is found worthy. And John weeps because no one's worthy. Who's going to find out what's written? And one of the elders said to me, Revelation 5, 5, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So you can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, Doug, you're not paying attention. It doesn't say son of David there. It says root of David. I know. And the word root and the word son are not the same, neither in Greek nor in English. John's vision of the resurrected, glorified, ascended Christ is that he is the source of David root just as much as he is the son of David by descent now I said okay so how does that help me today <laughs> brothers and sisters you have the incarnate son of God root of David 
Son of David, God in the flesh, who has come and done for you as your king what you cannot do. He has been your representative. I'm not good at obedience. He was perfect. I'm not good at prayer. He was. I'm distracted. He was focused. I'm confused. He's certain. I'm suffering and I don't know what to do. He walked before you. I've sinned. I've made a mess. He forgives you. I know I'm going to die. And I don't know if I can do this. He has. And he has conquered death. My brothers and sisters, we have a man in heaven, the son of David, the root of David, the promised Messiah who has come for the benefit of the Gentiles. Just like that Canaanite woman who got what she needed, he has come to us and given us salvation. And here should be your final comfort in all of this. This son of David, it is an intriguing thing if you ponder this for a moment. And from this, we shall go on into the Lord's Supper. Matthew's Gospel begins, You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And how does the 28th chapter conclude? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. King Jesus, Son of David, God with us, and God who promises to stay with us to the end of the age. Oh, Christian, may this be the joy and hope of your life on this Palm Sunday. He has come for you, and he is a mighty Savior. Let's pray. If the deacons who are going to serve would please come and join me here at the front. Our Father, We rejoice that the Son of God has promised to be present with us to the end of the age. He is indeed God with us. We rejoice to know that this Savior is also present with us as we take the Lord's table together. This is fellowship with the Son of God through the Spirit of God anchored in this word of God as we partake of these elements. O oh Lord, may we rejoice for the glorious gift that is your Son. For we pray it in his name.
from them. We invite you, my friend, if you're a baptized believer in Christ, you're welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. You do not have to, certainly. If you'd prefer to let it go by, that is certainly acceptable as well. In fact, I would say this. If you're not certain you're his, let it go by. This is for those who actually know they're his. Christian, yes, confess your sins. You and I are not worthy to do this, and yet he calls us to this. Our worthiness is found in another. This is for the good of your soul. So as you take the bread, what we ask is you take it, hold it till everyone's served, and then we'll all take it in unison. Same thing with the cups. We ask that you take it and hold it, hold on to it till everyone's served, and then we'll take it in unison, and then we'll conclude with a hymn. Oh, Christian, the son of David has come, and the son of David reigns. Let us rejoice in this good gift to us of the Lord Jesus Christ.
And the Lord Jesus, in that final Passover, takes the bread and gives thanks, gives it to his disciples. He says to them, take and eat, this is my body. We rejoice, our Father, that as we take this bread as food for our bodies, that Jesus is food for our souls, and that through his incarnation, through his living and dying, we are restored. Thank you that his flesh is true food, true bread. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.
he also in that night took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of the sins of many. Do this in remembrance of me. Our Father, through the spilling of the blood of your Son, our sins are forgiven. Through his glorious act, we are redeemed. And may we never lose sight of the humiliation of our King, which is our salvation. May we also never lose sight of the exaltation of our King, who even now is at your right hand. And now with joy, our Father, we look forward to his return. Even now as we live under his reign as citizens of his kingdom. For these good gifts, we give you thanks now in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together now and we'll have a concluding hymn. So we began, or we had uh, this song earlier in our service. Let's continue by singing this fourth and final verse of uh, the communion hymn together. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his bond here on earth as we share in his suffering we proclaim Christ will come again and we'll join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king as we share Oh, as we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come. 